Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at Romans 6 verses 3 through 5. And the Apostle Paul began a new section in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, which started with a question that we have already looked at about how a person under amazing grace, grace that that is now reigning and ruling in our lives, how a person under that grace now relates to sin. Paul didn't leave his theme of assurance, which he began back in chapter 5. He just now applies uh, uh, some, uh, provides some additional support. In fact, you could take Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8 and just skip chapter 6 and 7, and, and your Bible would make sense. Romans chapter 5 begins all of the, the, the thoughts of assurance and blessings, and Romans chapter 8 picks that theme back up. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 are like two giant parentheses or excursions where Paul goes off and explains some things that he's going to talk about, in, uh, or that he just got done talking about in chapter 5, and that he'll follow up in, in chapter chapter 8. So we're still under this theme of, of assurance. How saved are you? You are, you are saved, so saved, that there's nothing that could ever, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can ever bring a charge against you, being God's elect, and on and on. You know what Romans chapter 8 says. This is a excursion or a parenthesis about how a believer that's, that's so saved like that, how they relate to sin. What do we do with the fact that there's still sin around us and that believers still sin? I mean, no one ever escapes relating to sin in some way. Uh, that's what heaven brings, right? I mean, we can't wait to get to heaven because there will be no sin. There will be no tempter. There will be no temptation. But Christians and unbelievers alike living in this world deal with sin. We, we have human nature that the Bible calls the flesh. We have an adversary uh, of our souls called the, the devil. The difference between the world and, and believers, unbelievers and believers, is not whether we deal with sin. It, it, it's a lot of times it's what we call it. The world calls it mental health. We, we call it sin. The, the world says you can take this pill and fix it. The Bible says that Jesus is the answer and that he can transform your life, and on and on. But Paul says, after salvation, as believers, we relate to all of those things differently. We relate to sin differently, the world differently, and the, and the devil differently, which should give you assurance and should also motivate us to pursue holiness. B.C., or, or before Christ, we're under the reign of sin. We're under its power. And to, to borrow the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now he'll say in chapter 6, we died to sin. We walked according to the course of the world, Ephesians 2. Paul will now say in Romans 6, we, we, now, we now walk in newness of life. Paul will say we were ruled by the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. Now, now we're reigned over by grace. There were the lusts of the flesh and the, and, and the mind. We were by nature children of, of, of wrath in, in Ephesians 2. And now, and now we're, we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. It's a pretty sad and hopeless picture, B.C., before Christ. 
Paul just summarizes it with the phrase, we were slaves to sin, in bondage to sin. But now he says, having been justified, we have a new relationship with all of those things. We have peace with God. We have the hope of the glory of God. Adam is no longer our head. Jesus Christ is our, is our head. And that's what Paul's been teaching us in, in, in chapter 5. And now he transitions to how we operate in this world with sin before the, the new age comes. How are we to operate between conversion and the kingdom? And he's going to teach us that in in Romans chapter 6. We still deal with sin in the flesh, but as Christians, it's in a completely different way now that you're on the other side of the the cross. And so Paul writes chapter 6 to explain this new relationship and the way that we deal with those things. And I don't think this is an understatement. But chapter 6 of Romans is one of the most pivotal parts of the Bible as it relates to a Christian and sin. I mean, if you'll win the war with iniquity, including all of the little skirmishes that, that arise on the, on, on, uh, in your life every day, you'll need to understand and practice what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 6. James Montgomery Boyce echoed this thought whenever he said this. To understand this statement, what's the statement? That you died to sin is to understand how to live a holy life. He said, I would go as far as, as far as to say that Romans 6.2 is the most important verse in the Bible for believers in evangelical churches to understand today. Now, that, that statement implies something about evangelical churches today. But he says, if you want to understand how to live a holy life, you need to understand Romans 6.2 and... Romans 6, 3 through 5 and, and, and following explains what Paul means in Romans 6, 2. You died to sin as a, as a believer. He said that's because the, this is the first section in the book of Romans where Paul starts, starts talking about Christian living. I mean, you remember Romans. Romans 1 through 3, Paul belabors our sin and our, and our guilt. Uh, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven and it's been revealed against all of these immoral people. It's been revealed against religious people. It's, it's revealed against everyone. There's none righteous, no, not one. And then at the end of chapter 3 and all of Romans chapter 4, he gives God's solution being righteousness that the Lord himself provides by, that comes to us through faith alone. And then in chapter 5, he assures us that we have been justified And now in Romans chapter 6, this is the first time that Paul talks about living a life that's pleasing to God in light of all of that salvation. It's Christian living. It's the first time he brings it up. And Romans 6, 2, and what follows, is vital to understand Christian living. It's a key to understand the doctrine of sanctification, which is why a lot of people place Romans 6 in the, 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 the area of sanctification. It clearly touches on that as a subset. How to live a holy life, which is pleasing to to God. These verses are the key to that. I mean, do you want to live a life that's pleasing to God? If you're a Christian, I know you do. So then you want to pay attention to these verses because it's going to help you understand that. Paul starts the the topic with with the question in verse 1. Look at verse 1 of of Romans 6. Paul says, what shall we, we say then? And we said that shows us that, 
that what follows is a follow-up to the last thing he just got done saying in verse five or, or chapter five. Say about what, Paul? Well, say about the grace that I've just got done teaching you, you, you about. What is that teaching? Well, it's grace that now reigns where sin once did. Look, look back at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5 to get the context again since we skipped a Sunday. It says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. This is reigning grace. Even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the question he asks, shall we go on sinning so that this grace may increase? I mean, Paul asks and then answers the question related to this, to this grace that, that God now has brought into the life of a, of a Christian. And the question he asks and answers is if the law has no authority to restrain sin, has no power to restrain sin, the law came in so that, so that sin would become utterly sinful. If the law doesn't have the power to restrain sin, then, then how can grace do it? I mean, how does grace restrain sin? I mean, how can this grace that has invaded our lives through Jesus Christ quell sin? I mean, it would seem just the opposite, wouldn't it? I mean, you remove the fence, you remove the boundaries, and, and we just run wild with, with, with sin. We, we have nothing to stop us from, from, from doing that. I mean, how does, how does grace help me relate to sin differently? It would seem to encourage it. And a question to which Paul answers with resolute indignation. May it never be. Grace does not encourage sin. If that's what you think about grace, then you don't have biblical grace. So the topic is revealed right here in the introduction of, of Romans 6. This chapter relates to our ongoing relationship with sin. Shall we continue in sin? Now, as we're, now that we're a believer, someone under this reign of grace. And then he begins, begins explaining why and how. Look at verse 2. After he answers, may it never be, with the topic of dealing with, with, with sin. How shall we who died to sin, still live in it. And then he explains what he means by that all the way through verse 14. So this is a new section, but it's still under the topic of, of assurance. And chapter 6 teaches us about how the grace that comes from God now reigns over the power of sin that's left in, in the world. And that's what he'll tell us in chapter 6. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. And sin is no longer our master, therefore live like it. And the theme statement is right here in, in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin? We died to sin. And Paul's going to start explaining that in verses 3 through 5. Whatever dying to sin means, it's something that happened to you because you're in the gospel, because you're in Jesus Christ, it happened because of grace or through grace, because that's the context to begin with. And Paul says sin once reigned over us and we were all in bondage to sin before Christ, but, but now he says we died to it in Christ, meaning we died to its power. It's been broken off in the life of a believer. And then everything that follows in Romans 6 is to elaborate his point the fact that we died to sin. 
Now, I'll warn you, you're likely not to get all of this today. In fact, we won't even finish Romans 3 through 5 today. And what you should think about this, this series of messages and, and these passages is like a layer of lacquer. That there's, a, there's going to be a layer that'll come today, and then Paul will come right along, and he'll put another layer and another layer and another layer, all about this concept that, uh, of dying to sin. So I'll warn you, the Apostle Paul is going to say the same thing over and over and over. Because understanding this truth is so vital if you want to live in victory over sin. I mean, he picks it up like a gemstone and looks at it from a, from a number of different angles. So for those of you who want to jump to application or the so what of the, of the passage, like me sometimes, you may find yourself with a touch of frustration. And whenever you feel that, I want you to press in and ask yourself the question, do you really understand what it means that you have died to sin? Even when you hear that, you may say, what does that mean, I died to sin? Like, all right, Paul, I get it. Now tell me what to do in light of this. But this truth is so important, Paul says you have to get it. It, it has to sink in. Because if you don't understand what, hap- what God says happened to you at salvation... When you're placed into Christ, then you'll have no victory in sanctification. And you may end up struggling with assurance. So like the Apostle Paul often does, he starts with theology and then he goes to practice. He gives us doctrine before he goes to application, thinking before doing. And if you ever feel that way, like, wow, this is just saying the same thing and this passage is grinding along, always remember, God, if God belabors something, it's for a reason. And you can see the repetition plainly when you walk through this passage. The concept of death is repeated over and over. Look look at verse 3. Remember, the ruling thought in verse 2, we died to sin. Look at verse 3. We were baptized into his death. Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Look at verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In, in verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. And then in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Another another word for death. And in verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. In verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. I mean death over and over explaining you died to sin in a number of different ways. And when, and when you look at it that way, it's very clear that this first thought is the ruling thought of the passage. This death to sin. And everything that follows verse 2 is an explanation. And then once Paul thoroughly explains this doctrine, he starts applying it in verse 11. Look if you would at verse 11 of Romans 6. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. He brings you back to the original thought. But, but, he, but he now gives a command. But, but alive to God. In the same way, account yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. You are dead to sin, so now act as if you are. Act as if that fact is true. And the application goes on all the way through verse 14. Look at verse 12. More commands. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. The end of verse 13. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness. I mean, that's 
the primary answer to Paul's question about how grace can restrain sin. Grace causes you to die to sin. And he's going to explain all of that today, or begin to explain. Teaching us about our union with Christ. There are three things that changed at your conversion as it relates to sin. You are united with Christ, you died to sin, and you were made alive to God so that you could live a victorious life. That's a good summary of what Paul is about to say in verses 3 through 5. In verses 3 through 5, Paul describes three interrelated unions that took place at your conversion. He says we were united with Jesus Christ in verse 3. We were united with his death the end of verse 3 and 4, and we were united with the likeness of his resurrection in verses 4 and a half and 5. Three unions. These three unions, which you need to understand, in order to defeat the resident presence of sin while waiting on full redemption, which is coming at the new age. Again, between conversion and the kingdom. How can these theological statements that God makes about me be true? And then how do I relate to sin now? How does that work itself out in, in my life? And the first union, he says, that you need to understand is that you were united with Jesus Christ. And he makes an apparent statement followed by, by this associated result. Look if you would at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in, into his death? He, he starts with a rhetorical question as a, as a follow-up of his statement, which, which, which says that you died to sin. He, he says, do you not know? Do you not know? He means, of course you do. And, and, and remember, Paul has, has never been to Rome. So, so whatever he's saying is, is, is obvious Christian doctrine and and all believers under, understood. It's like saying, that doesn't shock you, does it? I mean, everyone knows a Christian relationship to, to sin has, has changed. Notice what else Paul says in the, is the, in the introduction there, verse 3. He says, do you not know? There's the rhetorical question. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus? All of us? is the we from verse 2. Who are you identifying as specific people? Go back to verse 2. He says, how shall we who died to sin? Paul makes the statement that we died to sin versus another group. And now he's going to make another statement that applies to the, to the same people as well. All of us were baptized into Christ. And the we in verse 2 is, is, is emphatic. We died to sin. And what Paul says applies to the people of God now applies to all of them. And that's important because it totally rules out unbelievers. It totally rules out the so-called carnal Christian. It rules out like a Catholic view of this passage where Paul says there are no... Um, Half-grade Christians, low-grade Christians, Christians in process, being made righteous. He says, we died to sin. And all of us have been placed in this union with, with Christ at salvation. 
And this death has results which are realized by, by all Christians. Lloyd-Jones says, whatever is coming is the reality of all Christians at the moment of, of salvation. And that's vital, as you'll see whenever we get to the talking about the power of sin and how to, how to battle against it. I mean, the fact that this happened to you, recognizing this happened to you at salvation is the greatest weapon that you have in the battle against sin. So, so what happened to us as Christians at the moment of, of salvation? Well, look at verse 3. He says, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul immediately brings up this, this topic of baptism or mentions baptism, which is one of the reasons these verses are so often twisted and even misinterpreted. He uses the, the word baptizo twice, which means to dip or to submerge. It was used in classical Greek and Greek outside of, of the Bible for, for what you did with pickles. You took cru- uh, cucumbers and you baptized them in, uh, you submerged them into, into brine. So one of the questions that you have to answer if you're, if you're going to understand this passage is what does Paul mean by baptism? And what's the significance of him using baptism? And, and what is its role, if any, in this concept of dying to, to sin? I mean, does Paul mean water baptism here? Is that what brings about the death to sin? I mean, is that, is that the weapon you use in, in, in battling sin now? I'm, I get baptized in water? Um, are the Campbellites right, or the, is the Church of Christ right, that, that this passage means that, that if you want to die to sin, you, you have to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus? We know that can't be if you've been walking along with us through Romans, because, because Paul just got done saying we're saved by grace alone. Not work, some religious act, not circumcision, not baptism in the name of Jesus, or any other name. I mean, it is what... Paul means here, I mean, is it baptismal regeneration, like in Catholicism, where the grace comes through the act of baptism, so you do that to a baby or, or a brand new convert into Catholicism, like sacramental uh, Catholic position, which is that, that baptism communicates or translates the power to overcome sin. I mean, in, in Catholic teaching, it's the assumption that the sacrament of a baptism joins us to Christ. This verse doesn't say, doesn't say that at all. Notice Paul doesn't say it's baptism that brings death to sin. Paul says you died to sin. And then he begins to explain. And what he explains is our union with Jesus Christ. He explains you died to sin by, by explaining this union. He says it's Christ's death. That's the power that that overcomes sin. The fact that that happened, not the act of baptism. Look at verse 3. He says, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I mean, the the ruling thought there, the the emphasis is into Christ and into his death. The flaw in in, in Catholic interpretation or, or, or others like it places the emphasis on baptism rather than the death of Christ, the union with, with Christ. I mean, Doug Moo rightly says Paul's point is not to emphasize how we were buried with Christ, but to demonstrate that we were. You were. 
And baptism represents that. Tom Schreiner said the emphasis is not on the means of God's activity of being baptism, but on the occasion of the work. I mean, Paul probably chooses baptism because it, it, it pictures dying and rising with Christ. It symbolizes your conversion. You can't be either of those other interpretations because baptism isn't even Paul's main point here. Let me say that again. The main theme of these verses is not baptism, which leads many to say that I heard this so many times I was reading commentaries. This is a, this is a dry passage. No water in Romans 6. Either baptism represents something or this baptism is talking about a spiritual baptism or union with, with Christ. We're, we're submerged into, into Christ. So if any interpretation that you read of Romans 6 focuses on baptism or water, it's going beyond the focus of the passage. Don't get tripped up over that. In fact, did you know this is the only time that Paul mentions baptism in the book of Romans? I mean, if baptism was that important in your salvation, that important in your battle against sin, don't you think Paul would talk about baptism more than just this one single verse right here? I mean, Paul uses the concept of baptism 11 other times in his writings. And all but one, by the way, seem to be a reference to water baptism. But this is the only time that he uses it in Romans. And Paul is using baptism here as a point of reference. Not saying that baptism is something that's, that's, that's significant. He's not saying that there's any magic in the water or the water itself causes us to die to sin. His main point is our union with Christ at conversion. And baptism represents that. It's a believer's participation with the with the death and resurrection of Christ. And baptism represents all that takes place in, in, in conversion. Notice how often Paul repeats the phrase, with him. Which is why the, 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 the title is this union with Christ. Look at verse 5. I already showed you the emphasis in, in, in verse 3. Look at it in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. It's union. We've been united with Him in death. We've also been united with Him in, in, in resurrection. And water doesn't put you into Him or in union with Him. It's regeneration, the Holy Spirit, conversion, all that happens to you whenever you, you, you come to Christ. And the Roman believers know that. Remember, Paul has not taught this to the Roman believers. Remember, he, he's, he's writing this letter in hopes that, that they would support him. When Paul says, do you not know? I mean, he's in effect saying, are you ignorant of the meaning of your own baptism? Have you forgotten what your baptism testified to? They were all aware that it was a, the symbol of baptism is what Paul meant. It's this is not a concept that Paul had to explain to them. They're all aware of what baptism symbolized. I mean, how do we know that? Because Paul doesn't explain it. I mean, he doesn't describe baptism or what's happening with it. He just explains the outcome of our union with Christ, which took place, whatever baptism represents here. I mean, the idea of baptism being associated with someone's conversion was common knowledge to Roman Christians. 
I mean, baptism equals conversion in Paul's mind here in, in this passage. You could say it that way. And in the Romans' mind as well. I mean, the error of baptismal regeneration is that you cannot separate baptism from the other parts of, of conversion. Like it's some system. Like faith or receiving the Holy Spirit or being given spiritual gifts or repentance or, or being, being placed into union with Christ, or baptized into the body of of Christ, all of which occurred at the same time, at the moment of a regeneration. And so Paul says we were baptized into union with, with Christ. We were submerged into him and all the outcomes of his work. And because of that, we were, we were incorporated in, in, into his death in some way. He's saying at the moment that we were born again, our union with Christ becomes a reality and baptism represents that to, to early Christians. It was the moment when they didn't just attend, they didn't just consider who Jesus was, they didn't just say, yeah, I think he is. Baptism in the early church was the moment when a person stepped forward, stepped out, and said, I believe, and I confess. And all of these things that, that Paul's saying took place has taken place in my life. But do you know what this verse does imply about baptism? It implies that the New Testament does not know an unbaptized believer. And neither does the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about it. If baptism was used synonymous with conversion, and Paul's saying it's common Christian doctrine, I haven't taught you this, Romans, you already know this, then it's a right that every convert participated in. I read one writer who said, uh, people ask the question, what would Paul think of a Christian who's not been baptized? And, and he said, you won't find Paul answering that question because it's not something that happens. I mean, nowhere in the New Testament does Paul deal with that question. What do you do with a Christian who's not baptized? Because it's not even something that, that anyone considered. It was so foreign. I mean, it's like asking... Uh, um, what if you don't fry a fried egg? Is it a fried egg? Is it still a fried egg? I mean, that's the kind of question. I mean, what do, you, what do you think about hot cocoa that has no cocoa in it? I mean, you just don't ask that question because it's an incoherent question. Just like it's incoherent to think of a Christian who, who's not baptized. It doesn't mean that you're not in the, you can't be in the process of that or considering that, but, but there comes a moment where I'm a Christian. And then baptism. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 11 that I'm glad that I didn't baptize any of you. I mean, when people were associating the rite of baptism with the, with the person who performed it, like some faction, 1 Corinthians 1, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and, and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized into my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. I mean, Paul's statement there clearly implies the act of baptism is not some means of grace or vehicle of God's transformative power, because he said Christ didn't send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Where's the power? Where's the transformative power to put you in union with Christ, to cause you to be dead to sin? The power lies in the preached gospel. 
Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul clearly assumes in this passage, though, that baptism takes place for every Christian. Even when an apostle doesn't perform it, whether that's Paul or Peter or another, now, it's not about the rite of baptism there in, in Corinth, and it's not the right of, about the rite of baptism here in Romans. Genuine faith is what saves and places you into union with Christ, and, and baptism symbolizes that regeneration. So if you've never publicly proclaimed what God's already done for you in baptism, you should. And at salvation, you were immersed into Christ. Which also means that you were immersed into his death. We were, we were united with Jesus Christ. It's the first union that you need to understand. But secondly, we were united with his death. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You've already been placed in union with Christ. And because of that, you were placed in union, you were submerged in, into his death, the results of his death. Verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, now if you understand that being baptized into Christ represents this being in union with him, then that helps explain what Paul means here by being baptized into his death. I mean, it means that those who are baptized into Christ were, were placed into his death, were meaning the effects of his death. Notice Paul mentions Christ's burial in verse 4. We were buried with him through, through this union. Now think about what Paul's arguing here. He's saying death to sin is universal for all Christians. It's a fact. How shall we, Christians, who died to sin, continue to live in sin? You can't, what Paul's saying. The Christian's death to sin is the main point. But then you have to define what does that mean. The, the idea is that the death I'm talking about is in reference to sin. Believers are translated from the realm in which sin rules and we're no longer under its tyranny. That's what he said in verse 2. The person who has died cannot still live. And a Christian can't commit the sins that they did before salvation. They're not able to live in those sins any, any more, longer, like they did before. But according to Paul, it's not that they shouldn't, it's that they can't. He tells us that that took place when we were baptized into Christ, placed in union with Christ. And then he goes further and explains how that's possible by saying it's possible because we were, were placed in union with Christ's death. It's not something that you did, it's something that... That, that happened with Jesus Christ. It's something that Jesus Christ did. And then you're connected to those benefits. You're connected to his death. You're placed in union with, with his death. You're baptized into his death. Being joined with Christ also joins a Christian with the Lord's death. I mean, you understand that. I mean, how, do you, how are your sins forgiven? Well, your sins are forgiven because they were, they were nailed to the tree. Your sins were placed upon Christ on the cross. And so judicially, God looks at Christ and forgives you for your sins. And now he's saying that the, 
that the, that the very power of, of sin in your life was also dealt with on the cross. There are other benefits besides just forgiveness. You died to sin. Your connection to Jesus is closer than you realize. It, it's, it's a union so close it can be said that what happened to him happened to us. We died to sin, and when he died, we died with him. And just to emphasize the definitive nature of this death to sin, he uses the phrase, and we were buried with him. We didn't just die to sin. We were buried to it as well. It's a definitive death to sin. And the only option to this kind of death is a resurrection, which is what's coming at the end of of verse 5. Again, let me remind you, you're sitting here, and you're not putting all the pieces together. You shouldn't be. It's layers of lacquer. Understanding. You have to understand what this means, that you died to sin. You have to pick it up and look at it from a number of different angles so you can understand it as, as well. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with a passage like this, or even the statement that we died to sin, is because we interpret the Bible by our circumstances rather than interpret our circumstances by the Bible. I mean, we experience times when we feel very alive to sin and very dead to God, don't we? I do. I have that experience. So what's true? What I experience or what the Bible says about me? So we, we interpret the Bible and our Christianity based on that experience. But what Paul says you need to do is understand what happened to you and the reality of it and then interpret your struggle with sin through that lens. You need to hear what God says happened to you in salvation and then you need to live in light of that. And that's a good way to summarize the focus here. Because if you understand that, then you're going to find assurance when you do struggle with sin and fall into sin, and you're going to find the key to victory over, over saying no to it or not living in it. I mean, listen, do you understand what Paul's saying here? The key to sanctification is not some higher life experience, not some emotional moment where you really get in touch with God and and then when you really get in touch with God, now you have power over sin. No matter how meaningful those experiences are, Paul says the key is to understand what happened to you when you were placed into Jesus Christ to begin with and then live that way. But it starts with understanding that truth. I mean, one preacher said it like this about this union with Christ. I mean, suppose you're, you're a family in a car and you get pulled over by a police officer and your dad's driving the car, and they ask for your dad's driver's license and registration. I mean, if he's able to produce them, then, then the police officer is going to wave the whole car on. You'll get through because you're in the car with your dad. Or vice versa, if your dad doesn't have the proper paperwork, then the whole car gets stopped. He says it's the same way with Christ. We're in union with Christ. And he has a record of death to sin. So whatever his record is, we, we relate to sin in the same way. Or you could think of it maybe how the government treats like, like a household. There are certain things that the government looks at it as the feral household. And 
as the head of the household that the children are folded in under the parents' relationship. It's the same way with, with Christ. So what happened to Christ happens to us, and Jesus Christ died to sin. I mean, even the tense of the verb in, in, in verse 2 is, is an aorist. You have to be careful with those. This is a single action that, that, that took place, in this case, in the past. Paul is not saying that we are dying to sin. Paul's not saying we shall die to sin in verse 2. He says we died to sin, period. John Stott illustrated it this way. He says that we have a biography as a Christian written in two volumes. Volume 1 is the story of the old man and the old self, which was before conversion. Volume 2 is the story of the new man and the new self after I was made a, a new creation. Conversion changes everything. You still deal with sin, you still deal with the world, you still deal with the devil, but now you relate to all of those things in a fundamentally different way because you're in Jesus Christ. We're not people with two natures. Have you ever heard the concept before, in you there's a black dog and a white dog and whichever one you feed, that's the dog that's going to win the fight? That's not biblical. You are made a new creation in Christ Jesus. You don't have two natures that are battling each other. You have one nature, a new nature. You've been given a divine nature of Jesus Christ. And now, though, that nature is still encased in flesh, it's still in the world, and, and you're, you're dealing with it. So that's the reason the battle is there. We're a people who lived under two masters with regeneration in the middle that separates those periods of time between the old volume and the, and the new volume. And you listen to the beginning of Romans 6, and James Montgomery Boyce took the words out of my mouth in his sermon. When you get to this place in the passage, he said, but I know what some of you are still thinking. You're thinking, but I'm a Christian and I still sin. So what about that? I mean, if I died then what about sin? What about a Christian returning to, to sin? And he went on, I think, to give three very helpful, helpful answers. He says, if, if you're trying to return to sin as a Christian after you died to it, he said it won't work, number one. Number one, it won't work. He said a Christian returning to, to the life that, that they lived before Christ, B.C., is like an adult trying to return to childhood. Can he do it? I mean, he can act childlike, though it would be an embarrassment to him and everyone else, but, but, but to become a child again can't be done. I mean, an adult can, have be, uh, can behave in an infantile manner. A Christian can sin, but an adult can become a child. In the same way, if you're a true Christian, you cannot return to sin in the same way that you were, you were in it previously. You can sin. We do sin. But it's not the same. Have you experienced that as a Christian? I mean, when you fall to sin, it's different, isn't it? I mean, if nothing else, you, you won't, he said you won't enjoy sin as you did before. And you'll not even be able to do sin convincingly. He said you'll be like Peter trying to swear that you didn't know Jesus after having spent three years in Jesus school. People will look at you and say, but surely you are one of his disciples, a true Christian. It falls into sin. doesn't even sin well. He says, number one, it won't work. 
a Christian who's dead trying to go back to sin. This is the reason I included all this in the sermon. Number two, he said God will stop you. God will not stop you from sinning, but he will stop you from continuing in it if you're a Christian. Did you hear that? God will not stop you from sinning if you're a Christian, but he will stop you from continuing in it, and he'll do that in one of two ways. Either he'll make your life so miserable that you'll curse the day that you ever decided to go back to sin or God will put an end to your life. Paul told the Corinthians that, that because they had dishonored the Lord's Supper, God had actually taken some of them home to heaven. That's what the Bible calls a sin and the death. And if God, uh, boy said, if God would do that for, the, for, for that offense, he will do it to you for persistence in more sinful things. Number three, he said, if you do return to the life you lived before coming to Christ, and if you're able to continue in that life, you're not a Christian. In fact, he said it's even worse than that. If you're able to go back once you have come to Christ, it means not only are you not saved, but you have been inoculated against Christianity. You have hardened yourself to the only remedy for your souls. And your condition now is worse than it was before you ever heard about, about Jesus. So he said, don't go back. But if you fall and do, don't stay long. And if you're a Christian, you won't be able to stay long. Martin Lloyd-Jones used the example of two fields to explain why believers sin in light of what, what Paul says here. He said, you can imagine it like this. There, there are two fields. I mean, Paul is talking about this is the way we used to live. We were in this field and we had a master here, and we did work in this field. And now we've been translated into a new field with a new master and new work to do. And in between those two fields is a road. That, that, that road is regeneration. You've been translated from one to the other, which is what Paul keeps trying to help you understand. You were here, and now you're here. You're no longer under the reign of sin. Now you're under the, 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 the reign of grace. So Lloyd-Jones says on one side of the road there's a field where the devil plants his crops and he's a harsh taskmaster and you were once in that field working. Now on the other side of the road is the field of righteousness where Christ reigns and we have now been transferred into this field and we have a new master. But while we're working in this field it doesn't stop us from listening to the old master shout across the road at us. And it doesn't mean that sometimes we won't be duped, even though we're in this field, to listen to his voice. And Paul's point in Romans 6 is you, the more you understand what he means by, by you died to sin, the more you'll understand that you're under a new master in a new field, and, and, and the, the, the softer that this voice in the other field will get. Paul says that you have died to sin's reign. 
And if you don't realize that you're in a new field under a new master, then you'll constantly listen to the voice of the old master barking orders as if you're still his. And so beyond explaining how it's possible and how it's true that we're dead to sin and, a, and, and alive to God, Paul wants you to have victory in your life. Are you dead to sin and alive to God? You say, well, I think so. I don't know. If you don't know for sure, I, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the, let, the, the message that we preached right before this or just apply what, what Boyce said in this message. Is it awkward to sin? Do you stay long? The believer won't stay long. The Lord won't keep you from sinning, but he won't let you stay there. Are you dead to sin and alive to God? Do you live like it? I hope so. If you don't, the way to have victory and the way to have assurance is to understand what Paul is talking about about here. And then obey. It's true. So come back. Listen to part two of this message. Let's pray. Father, the more I study this passage and the more I, I, I realize how little I understood and I'm impotent, I, I don't have the ability to turn the lights on. And yet you do. And you turn the lights on by, by just in your timing, in your way. Sitting under the same passages over and over. And then all of a sudden you just help me understand. I pray that you would do that. For anyone who's, who's still trying to figure out what, what you mean that we died to sin. I also pray, Father, for any Christian in here this morning that, that might be trying to go back to, to an old way of living, whatever reason, maybe listening to the voice of their old master. Father, I pray that you would not allow them to stay there. I pray, Lord, that you would make them so miserable that they would rue the day that they ever chose to start sin. I pray that they would have no sleep, no health. I pray that they would be anxious, depressed. I pray... That, that there would be no rest for their souls, Lord, until they turn to the one who can truly give rest to the weary. And then I pray you deliver them completely, totally. Thank you, Father, that we have died to sin. Help us to understand that and live like it. In Jesus' name, amen.